Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the sky-high cost of living in New Zealand. Annual inflation has seen its biggest increase in nearly a decade. Higher prices of food, fuel and building and running a house were the main drivers of the increase. It's a tone which for many signals alarm as the bill ticks up at checkout. Nearly every veggie cost you more last month. The building blocks like the timber, concrete and plaster. Do we pay too much for materials in New Zealand? Yes, we do. Substantially ripped off. Fuel prices reach heights not seen since before the pandemic. Petrol's just a fact of life and you just end up having to pay for it. We've seen our power bills increase from around $14,000 at this time of year to about $27,000, $28,000. The market is doing what the market is set up to do, but we don't think that's acceptable. I'll talk to freelance journalist Ollie Neese, who's looked into why we pay so much for the essentials, food, petrol, electricity, in a North and South feature called The High Price of Absolutely Everything. And guess who keeps popping up? The same guy who was crucial in the reforms of the 1980s, and then suddenly once you start seeing a name like that, you realise how often it pops up in all these different industries. But first, we're digging into food. Why Kiwis grapple with the cost of stuff that we grow here by the truckload? And why it's concerning enough for the Commerce Commission to look into it? The really interesting thing that all of them said was, wow, why are we paying so much for it then? Because they thought if we're earning lots and lots of money from exporting, we should get it a bit cheaper here. But the opposite happens. That's RNZ data journalist Farah Hancock, who's been crunching figures on food. We'll talk more soon on the 40 million people we feed. But right now, the might of supermarkets. We're grocery shopping with Ollie Nice. I've never particularly enjoyed um, going shopping, to be honest. But now when I walk down the aisle, it's all I see is, you know, market power. And, and you know, once I just saw a price, but now there's this complex web of relationships. You know, I'm looking at how much is the supplier actually getting here? How much is the supermarket getting? And you realise that actually often suppliers in New Zealand are, are really getting squeezed. Can you explain who gets what? Yeah, sure. And so it does vary between supermarkets and it varies between products. But at a really high level, if you're a supplier in New Zealand you're going to need to sell your stuff to the supermarket. And the supermarket is generally going to want about a 30% margin on the product, although that will vary between products. In addition to that, you're probably going to want to get a merchandising agent to actually make sure your stuff actually makes it to the shelves and that it's displayed properly. In addition to that, if you want to see how your product is performing, you're going to want to buy sales data off the various third parties that supermarkets sell it to. And then on top of that, you know, if, if your product doesn't sell, the risk is on you as a supplier, not the supermarket. That's just one section of the various costs that go into supplying a supermarket. There's transportation costs, logistics costs, warehousing costs, the list goes on. There's no way around it, is there? You've got to go to the supermarkets and they call the shots. That's right. So if you are a food supplier in New Zealand, it's very difficult to run a business without going to the supermarkets. You know, in, say, Australia, there's a, you know, hundreds of smaller independent grocers. In New Zealand, you've got, you know, your Binnins, your Moore Wilsons. There's a, there's a small handful of them, but really they're not big enough to sustain a, your business alone. So you're going to have to go to the supermarkets. And that means really in New Zealand, you're going to just two businesses, really. 
Why is that? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the supermarket duopoly, and we know that there is an investigation underway into that by the Commerce Commission. But why is there this duopoly? Well, it wasn't always this way. So the key moment really is about 20 years ago when there was the merger of progressives and Woolworths. And controversially, um, there had been some changes to competition law rules with mergers that would have probably ruled out the merger of those two businesses. But the application to merge was filed, I think, just a couple of days before the law change. And so it went all the way to the Privy Council, and the Privy Council said in London, well, actually, you've got to decide it under the old rules. So the merger was allowed to proceed. But since then, you know, the Productivity Commission's noted that there's a link, it seems, between a decline in competition in the supermarket industry and rising profits. And the question is, how much does that translate to the high prices we're paying at the till? And so, you know, in some circumstances, they're winning twice because they have their own brands that they sell and they're charging the suppliers who are who can be their competition. And another, another factor in this is that obviously the world's very different if you're a larger supplier. So if you say Coca-Cola, for instance, you're going to have a very different relationship to the supermarket. But it's these smaller suppliers who are finding themselves, they don't have any of the leverage that Coca-Cola has. They don't have any of the leverage that the supermarket has to, you know, stock its own product on its shelves. So you're fighting over often, you know, very small areas of shelf space and your your whole business is on the line every day. Ollie, when you were looking into this, because you looked across a number of industries and it's really the theme of it is why is New Zealand so expensive, how easy was it to find people who were willing to talk to you? Incredibly difficult. And this is one of the things that really stood out to me while doing this article. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about the conduct of supermarkets and food pricing and when you reach out to suppliers, you get a sense very early on that people are quite afraid to talk. And I spoke to suppliers who they spoke to me you know, anonymously and they told me their stories of trying to negotiate their contracts with the supermarkets and of how squeezed they're getting and their concerns about the viability of their business. But they're afraid to uh, put their name to it because of the severe repercussions they could face for speaking out. It's the supermarket's way or the highway. And and did you talk to the supermarket owners at all about this? I I tried to but didn't have a lot of luck with that. But it's worth reading the supermarket submissions to the the market study. And obviously the, the, the picture they set out is a little different. You know, they describe the impact of things like GST on food prices and also fluctuations globally in food prices, which has an impact as well. Yeah, but the thing is that, as your story says, they are among the most profitable supermarkets in the world. That's the general understanding, is that the New Zealand supermarket industry is one of the most profitable supermarket industries in the world. Food prices have risen 55% in the last two decades. And in fact, I think the latest consumer price index had another big leap in prices that was in the last few days. That good kai we're putting in our stomachs, we're also feeling in our pockets. The June food price index is out and shows fruit and vegetable prices rose 9.4% month on month. You wouldn't want to buy a cucumber at the moment. Yeah, capsicums as well, 27% up in one month. That's crazy. You know, the reality is 
yes, we produce enough food to feed 40 million people, but the reason we do that is not because we're growing it to feed ourselves. We're growing it because that's what the economy runs off. We're growing it to export it. And as a result, we pay prices that everyone in the world pays. I went down to Queen Street and I talked to people on the street. I said, you know, what percentage of milk do you think we export? And they gave me a percentage. I said, what would you say if I said it was 95%? And they were shocked. Farah Hancock has pulled over 31 years of data to find out who is eating our food. But the really interesting thing that all of them said was, wow, why are we paying so much for it then? Because they thought if we're earning lots and lots of money from exporting, we should get it a bit cheaper here. But the opposite happens because we fetch so much money for the stuff we export, be it um, milk, cheese, butter, meat goods, that drives up the price in New Zealand. So we have to match what overseas countries are willing to pay. And that really shocked a lot of people. They weren't very happy. The whole dairy thing is something that people really grapple with. Why should we be paying so much money when we're producing so much? And it's all about the global market. That's exactly it. I talked to the CEO of Beef and Lamb New Zealand, and I worked out if the price had followed inflation, you know, a kg of beef mince should be lower. I said, what, what is the reason? He said, look, it's really simple. If a housewife in Oxford in the UK is willing to pay a price for a leg of lamb, you have to match that price in New Zealand. We're price takers, not price makers. Because our population is so small. Yeah, so if, if somebody is willing to pay more overseas, we just have to match it. So uh, the price of certain cuts of meat have risen beyond what inflation suggests they should have, and it is the export market. The demand. That is pushing that price up for Kiwis. Which, which meats in particular? Which cuts? I looked at products that are in the food price index. Beef mints, beef blade steak, lamb loin chops... The only one which has come down is pork, and that's because we have some cheap imports. Who's buying our food? Where is the food going to? It's changed a lot over the years. I mean, back in the 1960s, a lot was going to the UK, but it's moved. So now, and especially since the free trade agreement, China is buying, it's buying most of our dairy produce, most of our sheep meat, kiwi fruit, yes, um, it's buying most of our seafood. Before China became a big buyer of our dairy, that was a bit more interesting because you had countries like Malaysia for one year was the top. Venezuela, I think, was the top another year. Um, Venezuela? Yeah. I did read somewhere that when countries start producing oil, they start buying dairy produce. I don't quite know why, but maybe it's a, a growing middle class that are looking for a type of protein. What other weird things did it show up, your data crunching? Lots of really little odd, little odd ones came out peanut butter. The biggest buyer of our peanut butter last year was China. The other um, quite unusual one was um, puzzles. Yes. There's millions and millions of trade records I looked at and I was scrolling through and puzzles kind of jumped out. And As they do. <laughs> As they do. It caught my attention. And initially I just looked at two years of data and I thought, oh, no, the bottom's fallen out of the puzzle market. We didn't, didn't sell many puzzles last year. But then when I looked back at a longer trend, I looked at about 31 years of data, um, the puzzle market has actually grown over time. It took a little dip in um, 2020, but it's actually grown. So we export around $5 million worth of puzzles, deer puzzles, each year. Um, biggest buyer is Hong Kong. 
why? It's used as a sexual vigour enhancer, so they're often exported dried or frozen. Um, dried ones, they soak in alcohol, like whiskey, and then they'll drink the little bits of the alcohol as a, a kind of tonic. And the um, frozen or fresh ones, they get put into hot pots, I think mainly, cooked up and eaten. Okay, that was a little off track. And in case you haven't already guessed, a pizzle is an animal penis, usually that of a male deer. So back to our topic of our high food prices. Here's Ollie Nees to explain why we have to pay the same as the rest of the world for our milk. Wind the clock back to, you know, 40 years ago, and, and then things were done quite differently. You know, you take milk prices. Before the 1980s, the government actually intervened to regulate milk prices, and it subsidised producers to cover the shortfall. And that was because the government saw this as an important thing to do. We, we loved our milk. But from the 1980s, there was a change. Subsidies were removed. Price controls were removed. As a result, the price of dairy products is just set um, on the market, you know, at, at a very high level, supply and demand. You know, rising demand overseas with a growing middle class in, in India and China, that equals growing demand for our dairy products. And that pushes up the price here. So it means that we are actually competing with all the other customers in the world for our milk. That's the way it's currently structured, but in a way there's a political decision at the heart of that, which is if the government said, well, actually, you know, milk is a, a very important thing for everybody, it, it could require that things are done differently. But that's just not the way that we run the economy these days. But I guess the other thing that someone raised with me is that, you know, if you're in France, you can buy a bottle of wine for, say, two euros. But you could never buy New Zealand wine for the equivalent here. And yet we produce a lot of wine per capita. I must say, I don't know a lot about the wine industry, um, but at a high level, you've got the same kind of, of dynamic. You know, we're, we're growing wine to export it primarily. And the other major difference from the Europe, to bring it back to what we were talking about before, is the difference in competitiveness in the supermarket industry. You're in, in Europe, somewhere like Germany, you've got a very competitive supermarket industry. In the UK, very competitive. In New Zealand, we've got essentially two businesses. And that could well be part of the explanation for the price difference there, although it's unlikely to be the entire explanation. Why haven't we got more competition in the supermarket industry? Why, why isn't there another player or two? Because, you know, you have pointed out that it's a very profitable business to be in. One answer is, is that perhaps it's not worth the while for other supermarket chains overseas. You know, people often point to Aldi, which is this low-cost supermarket chain that had a big impact on prices and competitiveness in the UK. It also had an impact in Australia. People are asking, you know, why doesn't Aldi come to New Zealand? And I think part of the reason is maybe we're just too small to make it worth their while. Another reason as well is that there have been concerns previously about supermarkets land banking, which is essentially you, you buy up land, you sit on it because it's strategic, and that makes it hard for your competitors to move on in, onto your turf. Which makes you wonder if this Commerce Commission investigation is going to get anywhere. You know, is it going to lead to lower prices? I think the market study, it's going to have an impact of some kind. And I think it already has. It's already surfaced a whole lot of really valuable information about, say, how suppliers are feeling. And then if you look at the market study that's already completed with the you know, retail fuel industry, 
that's led to recommendations that the government is, it seems is going to enact most of, which will have some impact. But there's certain kinds of answers that are that are, if we're being honest, off the table. You know, nobody's really talking about breaking up the duopoly. The government can't force Aldi or some other company to enter the market. Ollie, another market that is baffling that you looked at is the electricity market. And again, it's a case of, you know, we produce a lot of that electricity. Um, around 80 or 85% of it is renewable, but it costs people so much. The thing I found most interesting about looking into this was actually just having a look at how prices have changed over time. And more importantly, not just how prices have changed generally, but how they've changed for different people. So if you look at residential power prices over the last 35 years, they've essentially doubled in real terms. But for commercial and industrial users, they, they haven't risen in the same way. And so what that amounts to essentially is that you know ordinary households carrying more of the burden. Why is that? Well, there's uh, different explanations, and it depends on who you ask. But one possible explanation is that If you go back to before the 1980s, the way we delivered electricity was through a public agency, you know, the New Zealand Electricity Department. And the way it operated, it was a public agency. It delivered power because people needed it. Issues like fairness were an important part of how prices were set. But since the 1980s, the industry has been deregulated. You know, the electricity department was broken up and partially privatised. And there's not, there's oversight on prices, but there's not a lot of robust regulation around that. And the consequence is if you're trying to maximise your profits, the reality is is that households don't have the same kind of negotiating power that big businesses do. So the consequence is going to be that ordinary people are going to get squeezed and um, big businesses are going to do relatively better off. And is anything likely to change there? Back in 2018, the government uh, undertook the electricity price review, um, and this looked into some of these questions, and it's, it recommended some changes to the retail electricity market. Uh, that will have some effect, you know, improving competitiveness there, but its conclusions as to wholesale electricity generation and transmission charges were essentially that there's not really a lot going on. And so the prevailing wisdom of the last 20 years, I think, is, is probably set to continue, and the prospect of, say, a return to public ownership of electricity generation is, is not really something that's on the cards, for the time being at least. One of the personalities that you picked out while you were investigating these high prices was Rod Dean. Tell me a bit about him and, and his influence on these markets. So Sir Rod Dean's a really interesting character, and the reason I worked him into this story is that I think the story of his career in a way, reflects this broader transformation in New Zealand's economy and the change in how we handle questions about the influence of, of, of business over markets. You know, rewind 40 years, and, and Rod Dean was a leading public servant. You know, he was uh, back under Muldoon. He was influential during that constitutional crisis around the devaluation of the currency. Um, and then under the fourth Labour government, he's generally credited as being one of a small number of public sector advisers who are really influential in uh, developing the policies of the Rogenomics era and was crucial in this restructuring of the economy away from a more government-led approach to a more free market approach. 
But then what's really interesting about Rod Dean's story is that after that, he became a leading figure in the corporate sector. And so he actually led a number of the companies that did really well off a lot of these uh, changes to how we structure things. You know, he, he ran telecom, he ran Fletcher's, he was high up in ANZ, he's had a hand in the supermarket industry, and then, you know, actually in the late 80s as well, he headed the uh, electricity corporation when it acquired the country's electricity assets in 1987. So, uh, c- curiously, he tracks the story that I was writing about in a really interesting way. You know, the things that stood out to me is one, often we think about prices as something that affects all of us, because in a way that's true. But actually, when it comes down to the price of the essentials, these don't affect all of us equally. So over the last decade, for example, you know, lower income households have experienced twice the rate of inflation as richer households. And that's a reflection of the fact that when prices of essentials rise, that's going to hit the poorest the hardest because you just have no choice but to pay for food and to pay for electricity and to pay for your rent well it made me reflect on the question of what is a fair price and I think sometimes we have to recognize that the market price you know this is the price that is spit out from the laws of supply and demand and suppliers costs and all of that that's only the starting point and often that is going to be the end point but for the essentials sometimes we need to ask is this actually fair And that's not an economic question, that's a political question and a social question and an ethical question. And sometimes I think we need to be more ambitious in how we go about answering that question. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. And if you want to get in touch, email us at thedetail at rnz.co.nz. Alexia Russell produced today's episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Ollie Neese and Farah Hancock. <laughs>